This week at Hope Point. The way that we love the world is by pleading with the world. This is our calling. Please be saved. Please come to Jesus. At the end of the service, please meet with someone from the prayer team if you would like. Just tell them I need help in my relationship with God. Please come. We love the world by pleading, but we also love the world by warning. And when our warnings are not heeded, our warnings have great power. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. If I could paint, if I were a painter, not, and uh, given an assignment to paint uh, uh, one picture on the canvas of what I think is a great metaphor, great description of the church, I think I'd paint a picture of a ship uh, in the middle of a storm, at sea, strong winds, high waves, to the point the storm's so strong that you would say that ship is not going to make it. Some of the storms that have been faced by the church through the years have been self-inflicted. The church has behaved in such poor ways that the legitimacy of our witness, it looked like it was going to completely die out. We're embarrassed. We grieve over such decisions by believers, even by ourselves. But the greatest storms that the church has ever faced have been the storms of demonically inspired persecution attempting to bring down the witness of biblical preaching and and biblical conviction in the lives of, of Christians. So much so that it looks at times as if the glorious witness of the church is going to sink. And the promise of the Word of God is that no matter how fierce the winds are and no matter how high the waves are, the church is going to arrive in the glorious harbor of heaven. So if you belong to the true church, and that does not describe most people who are alive in the world today, but if Jesus Christ is the captain of your salvation, then you will arrive in heaven when life is over, battered, bruised, but eternally joyful and safe forever. But if you belong to the world, and most people who are alive today do, you belong to the storm of resistance against Christ and against biblical teaching, then it will be your ship that sinks, and you will descend into an eternal darkness that has no bottom and no end. And for every second of eternity, you'll be a continual descent farther and farther away from God, farther and farther away from hope. So with all of that said, I want us to look at the vulnerable and invincible church of Revelation 11. Verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure that because it's been given over to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So when you read these verses, what you have here is a man that is assigned by God to measure half the temple, and he's told, don't measure the other half. The half that he does not measure is trampled by hostile forces from 
the world. So the first thing we need to identify when studying Revelation 11 is what is the temple? And I'm going to argue for a few minutes today that this is not a literal temple, not a physical temple. It's a figurative figure of speech. A lot of times when people hear a pastor say they don't believe parts of the Bible are literally true, they, oh, they, oh, you believe, no, I believe all of, I think everything in the book of Revelation is real, real church, real God, um, real persecution, and real reward, but I think God is very comfortable about with teaching us real realities through symbols. The symbols are not real. Let me say it like this. This is not a literal temple in Revelation 11. It's a symbol of a reality that is much greater than the symbol. The purpose of figurative language in Revelation is to describe a real event with extreme symbols to capture our imagination with urgency, but to not always see that the symbol is real. You say, well, how do you know that you can even think like that? Well, our chapter tells us that. In a few minutes, we're going to read this verse, Revelation eleven three, and I'll appoint my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. So if you say, I believe that everything in Revelation is literally true, that means that you believe at some point in the future, God's going to have two preachers who go around the country in evangelistic campaigns. And at the end of their sermon, if people don't come forward for a prayer, a flamethrower comes out of their mouth and devours them. So you already look at that and say, no, that's symbolic of something. I don't, may not know what it is, but I don't believe that there will be preachers who use fire in their teaching for those who don't come forward. So I'll tell you in a minute what, what the interpretation is of that verse, but right now I just want to go back to Revelation 11 and try to figure out what is this temple of God and why is it symbolic? Well, let me just tell you about God's temple. There were two of them, primarily in the Bible, both of them were destroyed. One of them was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The other one was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70 under the leadership of a Roman general named Titus. For many years, people who have taught the book of Revelation and said it's all literal have come to Revelation 11 and said, Jesus Christ is not coming back until there's a third temple built in Jerusalem. So if you ask them today, could Jesus come back today? They would say, no, not until the third temple is built and the nations around the world invade it. I don't think that's the intention of John is to be looking at a law. He was writing in the first century and he's talking about an event that's taking place in the 21st century so that everybody in the first century, the book of Revelation meant nothing to them because he's trying to write to a group of people who are already being invaded. Their fellow Christians are already dying and he's writing to them. He's not writing about a far off event of a temple in Jerusalem. So if it's not a literal temple, what is it? What does a symbol mean? Well, you have to understand why God invented 
or commanded the temple to be built anyway. In the first place, God said, I want you to establish a temple in Jerusalem so that all the nations will understand I am the only one who can forgive sin. That's what the temple said. And the only place where sin can be forgiven is when people make sacrifices at the temple. So that told all the nations, the God of the Jews, that's who we need to, to get to. But then you fast forward to the New Testament and you see there's not a need for a temple anymore because when Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice for sin, there was no need for a temple ever again. He is the temple. He's the place where you come for worship. And all those who gather with Jesus are part of his temple. We'll say, well, how do, you, how do you get that? How do you know that? Thank you for asking. There was a time in Jesus' life when he walked into an assembly of people that claimed to be God followers, and they had turned but the church, basically the house of God, into a, a, you know, a money-making scheme. And so Jesus went in and he just, he literally turned over all of the furniture inside the temple and told everybody to leave because you're not using it for a house of prayer. And as soon as he did that, all of the religious leaders who had done this, they asked him a very interesting question. They said in John 2, 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Like you've come in and you've, like you removed all the chairs and the sound system. What'd you do to I love, I love this question. This is man asking the Son of God, who gives you the authority to rule the world like you want to? It's a funny question. Why do you get to make the rules, Jesus? That's what they're asking. He answers, not in a way they thought. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now you can need to understand, this is mind-blowing to them. He's standing in the middle of the temple and he had just scattered all of the furniture and said, start over. And he said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They're thinking temple around them and they ask him about that. They're thinking physical temple. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? I mean, the definition of clueless. And then John, the writer of the gospel, sort of whispers, adds commentary to us who are reading it, and said, but the temple that he had spoken of was his body. So we, we know from this that when, when we talk about temple and the body, we're not talking structure, we're talking him. He's the temple now in the New Testament. In matter of fact, as we get to the end of the book of Revelation in nine years, <laughs> we're going to see exactly how much of the temple that he is. Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city of God in heaven because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They are the gathering place. Jesus is the temple. And until that day takes place, Jesus' temple on earth the church is growing day by day through preachers and evangelists and business people and moms and dads like yourself who are witnessing in your neighborhoods. And this is why the Apostle Paul described the church as a building that's ever growing. 
In Ephesians 2, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling temple in which God lives by his his spirit. So my point in all of this is saying when you come to Revelation 11 and you start reading about that temple, you need to understand you're reading about the church not a temple in Jerusalem. You'll miss the whole chapter if you think that. So now we come back to Revelation chapter 11. You say, what is John measuring? Why did he measure it? So you got the picture of the church and he's measuring. What does that mean? Well, it means that when you measure something, you put a boundary around it. You count it. So, In the book of Revelation 11, we're seeing God counting, sanctioning off, and identifying, this is my church. This is my true church. And the reason why that he's doing that is because that church is enduring incredible persecution and will be trampled by hostile forces from the world for a period of 42 months. And so God's true church is being marked off, measured, so God can protect his true people from falling away from the faith when persecution comes. He's keeping his church. That's what it means. He measures his church. Now you say, how do you know that? Because this already happened once in the book of Revelation. I told you Revelation is three cycles. Seals, trumpets, bulls. And the same thing happens in each cycle. So In Revelation chapter 7, with the seals, we saw the church was everybody that belonged to them, belonged to God. They were sealed so they could endure persecution and not fall away. The same thing happens in Revelation, except here the terminology is they were measured. They were marked. It's the same thing. The world is hostile, gathering around the church, wanting to attack and destroy the church. And God is sealing, marking, measuring, identifying his people so that he can strengthen them. So the hostility that is spoken here is spoken of that the hostility against the church is going to last for 42 months. And let me remind you, the reason that this hostility, the the world comes against the church in Revelation 11 is because of what happened in Revelation 10. The message that we were given to preach last week is said it was a sweet message and a bitter message. It came with lots of comfort and it came with lots of warning. The world doesn't want to hear that. Maybe the sweet part, not the warning part. And so the reason the persecution has happened in Revelation 11 is because of our faithfulness to the message of Revelation 11 chapter 10. So now the question is, when is this period of 42 months of of suffering? And I suspect by now that you know that my answer is going to be, it's not a literal 42 months. You're sort of getting used to that this is the way that I, I believe is the highest way, the best way to interpret much of the book. Now, I don't have as much time as I wish to tell you how this 42 months plays into the rest of the book, but so that I can, 
we can handle this verse today, I do have to go to the next chapter and tell you that Revelation chapter 12 is about the birth and death, resurrection and the ascension, the going back to heaven of Jesus Christ. That's Revelation 12. And after he returns to heaven, the Bible says the enemies of Christ, after he returns, chase his followers, pursue them for a certain period of time. Let's read how long that is. The woman, this is a description of the church in Revelation 12, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. She's to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. This is the hardest I'm going to make you think today. But if you don't grasp what is this 42 months, and the answer is right here, you, you, you completely miss the fact that now is our time to suffer. So 1,260 days or time, times, and half time. What would that be? A time is a year. Times would be two years. Half time, I mean, uh, and a half time is a half year. Add those up. Three and a half years. Wow, look at this number. Whether you say 42 months, 1,260 days, or time, times, and a half time, which is three and a half years, it's all the same number. This is the period of time that the church will suffer. So now is the question, why is John so fixated on this weird numbering system? Specifically, why the three and a half years? Well, think about it. The number in the Bible and all of literature for wholeness or completion is the number seven. So John wants us to know that the suffering that God asks us to endure is only three and a half years. A full gamut of the world's hostility coming against us, the full seven years of suffering, would do us in. None of us would survive. All of us would become apostate. And so God in his mercy limits the suffering of the church to only the symbolic three and a half years. So now you understand three and a half It's the same as 1,260. Now you can come back and understand this 42 months in Revelation 11. This speaks of the entire time that the church has been in existence from the time that Jesus went back to heaven to the time that he will return from heaven to earth. That's the 42 months in Revelation 11. Now is suffering time, not some period in the future of three and a half years when the pagan nations invade Jerusalem. It's our time to suffer now. And if you don't grasp that, you won't be prepared when it truly is your time to suffer. So let me say it this way. The nations are going to trample on the church for this period of 42 months, which is from the time of first century to now. And here's the principle we get out of this. Christians are eternally secure, yet momentarily vulnerable. The God who infinitely loves us will lead us to glory through suffering. We who worship Jesus for his suffering and triumph will also experience suffering on the way to our triumph. 
If you believe that Revelation 11 just talks about the future, you won't, you won't have any way to handle your suffering, your suffering now. So here's the question. Now that we know it's our turn to suffer now, this is the 42 months. We are the temple that's being harassed by the world. How are we to live now in the midst of this context? John tells us. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Aren't you glad that you know that? 1,260 days, that's 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's now. You know it now. Clothed in sackcloth, and they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. So when you read this, part of it makes sense. I know what prophets are. They're like preachers. So two of them got that. Two preachers. Lampstands, I can get that because I remember the church was called the lampstand in Revelation chapter 1. So that would be like, those are preachers too. That's missionaries. That's church members. That's witness. Prophets, lampstands, that's us, light of the world. Olive trees, not so much. Don't get that. But you will. If you remember back in the Old Testament, God's people had been just devastated. The Babylonian army had come into the city of Jerusalem, burned it, crushed its walls, killed some of good many of its people, and the rest of them he took to captivity for 70 years, 900 miles away. Seven decades later, some of these people got to return. Can you imagine coming back to a city? Can you imagine even going to a city where nobody's lived in it in 70 years? What it looked like, what it felt like. Oh, everybody's hopeless. So God raised up two leaders. There they are, Joshua, who was a priest. Zerubbabel, who was a governor or a king-like. So you have priest and king and like Jesus you have this priest and this king leading the people. You can rebuild your city. That's Zechariah. That's what it's about. After 70 years, you can do this. Well, the only problem is these leaders did not really believe in their own leadership. So God sent the book of Zechariah, I mean the prophet Zechariah, to encourage these leaders so they could encourage the other people. And this is what God told those two men. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah the prophet told these two guys, you will rebuild this city not by your strength and your ability and your intelligence, but by the spirit of the Lord. Yield this principle. When your strength is gone, God will empower you to do more than your own strength could have ever done. God will not meet you in the full display of his power until your strength is at its end. That's the message of, of Zechariah, truly really the message of Revelation chapter 11. Now I want you to look at the boldness of these two witnesses in this book. Revelation 11, 5. Anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Well, you're going to interpret that literally? Is that really what the church looks like? 
People who don't listen to the message, we blow them away with flamethrowers. You know that's not literal. Now, I know that all of us have been engaged in conversations with difficult people where we wish we did have the gift of... (laughs) Jesus' own disciples wanted that gift. On a day when he was going to Samaria, or he wanted to pass through Samaria, James and John were with him, and the people of Samaria, you know, they hated Jews, would not let our Lord pass through. And look what, his, what James and John asked the Lord. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? And look at the Lord's reply. He handed it to him on a plate. He rebuked them. So... If Jesus is against flamethrowers being used in evangelism, then what does it mean that the word of God comes out of our mouth with such power? Well, we definitely know that it doesn't mean that we have the power. No believer has the power to, to judge or execute anybody who has rebelled against God. God is the only one who has the authority to take life for rebelling against him. But this verse in Revelation does show us the importance of our words. The way that we love the world is by pleading with the world. This is our calling. Please be saved. Please come to Jesus. At the end of the service, please meet with someone from the prayer team if you would like. Just tell them I need help in my relationship with God. Please come. We love the world by pleading, but we also love the world by warning. And when our warnings are not heeded, Our warnings have great power used by God to execute his sentence upon those who did not listen to the word of God that we shared. That's why our words are so important, because they tell the world what God has said. Even Jesus said, be careful, it's because my words are so important. Love how he said this in in John chapter 12. I did not come to judge the world... We love that, don't we? I just love that verse. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge. For the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words that I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. So Jesus said, it's not my heart to judge, but once I speak to the world and they deny my words, the words that came out of my mouth will judge them. Say it like this, no one speaks more important words than the preacher or the missionary or the witnessing Christian. For the words that we speak about Jesus Christ have the power to save anyone who comes to him for forgiveness and hope. Yet those same words have the power to condemn everyone who refuses to come to Christ. There's great power in the words out of our mouth when we share the word of God either the power to save or the power to condemn based on the reaction of the listener. 
Now, the power of those who are faithful to speak God's word is further clarified in Revelation 11. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So again, when you read this, you go, oh, I, I think that's another case where it's, it's, I think maybe it's figurative here. You remember who it's talking about, though, don't you? He's using examples from the Old Testament. Elijah, remember the power that he had when he spoke? It didn't rain for three and a half years. And when Moses spoke, the Nile River turned into blood as a judgment against King Pharaoh. So I think what this verse we said, what does it mean? What's the application? I think here's the application. When we speak the word of God, we have power for people to either be saved or power to be condemned. But while we're speaking the word of God of warning to the world, God himself is sending calamity all over the world so that people will understand their mortality and be inclined to be prepared to meet their God. So judgment is taking place all over the world from the Lord while we speak his word of warning. But people don't want to be warned. And this is why they attempt to destroy the witness of these believers, the church. Now, when they had finished their testimony, Revelation 11, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. So we're going to meet the beast in Revelation 13, most likely a reference to the power of the state, the power of the government, using its power to stop the witness of the church and coercing culture to turn against the church. And the world moves in that direction often with the blessing of the state. Look at how the world turns against the witness of the church in Revelation 11. Their bodies, these are the, the bodies of believers, will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, if you're going to be stubborn and tell me everything in the book of Revelation is literal, you've got a problem with this verse. Because our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. He was crucified in where? Jerusalem. So what's he mean? Figurative. So there's only two cities that are mentioned in Revelation. The great city, which is the world's power, and the city of God called the holy city in heaven. Here, the great city, which is a description of all worldly corrupt cities, is identified with Sodom and identified with Egypt. Well, what happened in Egypt? People rejected God for idols. Egypt was the strongest power in the, in the world. All the blessings, rain, harvest, crops, caterpillars, butterflies, Birds, clouds, life, babies, families, business, commerce, pyramids, intelligence, 
God gave Egypt everything, and they refused to worship God. Instead, they worshiped idols. So when you talk about the spirit of the cities, it's those who refuse to worship God, and, and they, instead they worship their idols. Then Sodom. What's that? Well, just as Egypt worshipped idols, Sodom worshipped sex. Any type of immorality that could have been invented by a corrupt heart, Sodom did it. And so here in Revelation eleven eight, John is saying that the spirit of idolatry that was in Egypt, the spirit of immorality that was in Sodom, that same spirit of evil was in Jerusalem, and that's what killed Jesus. A spirit of evil killed the Son of God. And so all of the great cities and towns in history have loved idolatry and immorality and have not loved God and instead have wanted to do away with the witness of God in, in the church. Look at how much the world detests the witness of the church. For three and a half days... Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies. These are the preachers who died. And refuse them burial, adding insult to the wound already, the mortal wound. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate their death by sending each other gifts. Because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So the inhabitants of the earth, all the worldly people in the great cities of history, are celebrating the demise of the witness of the church. Celebrating the church is going down. The one thing that's growing in our country more than anything else in my little 61 years that I've lived. The one thing that's growing more than any other thing is a celebration of the death of righteousness. Right here. That's what's happening in our culture. As I've never seen a celebration of the death of righteousness. Leading voices in our culture, leading voices in our government have a hatred of righteousness. And a love of perversion. On the whole, not everybody, but on the whole, the leaders of our culture hate marriage and hate babies and hate morality. And therefore, they hate the witness of the church, which calls the world to repent. Now, this is an interesting thing of how, how long these people stayed dead. Three and a half days. These two leaders were killed by hostile forces three and a half days. Why does John go from three and a half years to three and a half days? He's changing, obviously. Just a guess. Two guesses. First, I think he, now he's designating three and a half days as a very intense time of persecution that's going to come upon the church at the end of the world. We've been persecuted for three and a half days years, as we saw, right? 42 months, 1,260 days, 21 centuries. Three and a half years. Now, three and a half days, it will be an especially difficult time at the end of history. 
I think you can prove that in 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew chapter 24, of what's coming. Guess number one of why three and a half days. Second reason he said three and a half days, maybe he just wanted to say, these people lay, laid in defeat for three and a half days, and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I know that number. Three days, three days. Where is that? Where have I seen that number? Three days, three days. What about our Lord? What about Jesus in the tomb? Three days. Crucified on Friday, buried. Three days, the church was hopeless. Disciples thought that evil had won. And on the third day, triumph over the grave. Triumph over evil. Maybe John just wanted to tell us, remember that evil does not win and the grave will lose. And I really think that may be the best interpretation because look how, I think it's a teaser for what he says next. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. A lot of people who are near me when I'm writing in the office and at home sometimes will hear me saying things. Hey, what? Well, this is what Lisa heard me saying Friday as I was trying to get a hold of that. I said, are you kidding me, John? You've already taken us through this most grueling chapter. What do you mean they came to life and went to heaven and all their enemies saw them go up? I didn't really know what to do with that, so I have um, two more guesses. Guess number one, it could just be well, on the whole, let me tell you how to read the book of Revelation. Ever so often, you just got to come to some of the complex parts of Revelation and hear the writer John say, chill out, bro. Don't overanalyze it. Enjoy it. So I think that's maybe what he's doing here, just saying, listen, guess number one, maybe it's just a reminder that no matter how much you lose for Jesus, no matter how much the suffering is on earth, it's a powerful reminder that when you die, Christ says, come up here. Come up here. Maybe we've already seen come up here once in the book. Maybe it's just another reminder. Come up here. Second interpretation of this, which is, I think, better, is... I think it's a reminder that the church will not be defeated, cannot be defeated, even when it looks like the hostile forces of the world utterly shattered, all hope, evil one, right when it looks like there's going to be no more sermons, no more gathering, church doors closed, people staying at home, living in fear, lost faith, lost confidence, boom, God will raise Fill us with new heart, new desire, new missionaries, and the church will, even in the worst of the persecution times, their witness will come alive. I think it's a promise that the witness of the church will never go away.
A lot of people think that John in Revelation, because I don't know if you know this, but in the book of Revelation, he looks back to the Old Testament 400 times. He loves the Old Testament. So a lot of people think that when he's looking at this passage of these people getting up, that he's thinking about that story in Ezekiel where God takes this man, the prophet Ezekiel, to a valley of dry bones, a, a valley in Israel where there's just nothing but skeletons. It was obviously a battlefield. Men had given their life and it's just a battlefield of skeletons. And God looks at Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live again? And Ezekiel took the easy way out. Well, you, you're the only one that knows that, Lord. I mean, it would be cool to say, yes, my God can do anything. He didn't say that. He said, you know. And then God said to him, you're about to know. Tell the bones to live Speak words of life. Powerful. And Ezekiel does that. Look what happened. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together. Tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. And breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet. A vast army. That picture of the future of the church. The ship looks like it's going down, but it will arrive in the harbor of heaven. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.